start. We can start. You ready to go? Yeah, yeah. Because we this is the kind of stuff we want to talk about, right? I, I mean, absolutely. All right. We got the uh, official start to episode 22 of An Untold Narrative. Why don't you tell us who we have in the room on camera with us? Um, this is in reverse now. Chris absolutely. Burns, I'm the founder of arts-usa.com. The website is a catalyst for conversation around the sneaker industry. What it is, and you can compare it to, are bigger sneaker websites without the hype and that addresses business, uh, marketing, all of the facets of the sneaker industry is what Arch covers and what it is attempting to do is make a smarter sneaker consumer and a smarter sneaker veteran. So people that are on the industry side, they read the website to get information. People who are sneaker culture connoisseurs, they read it to get information on smaller brands or to look at marketing and see how the marketing is working in regards to something. But that's what Arch is. And um, first and foremost, that's, who, that's what I am. That's who I am. That's what I do. I'm in a studio. We have a small um, studio for making records. My son's a musician. He's also my content director on the website. He's in his gap year for you know, graduated high school this year and COVID just threw everything off. So he's in his gap year. He's working as a musical content director. Uh, the back of the office back here is a photo studio where Whitney is the director of visuals and photography. So I'm building out a small media company underneath Arch, but the foundation of the business and the website is being a catalyst for conversation around the sneaker industry. That was uh, quite the introduction you just gave yourself. That was uh, very healthy. Um, and we're going to get into Arch specifically. And uh, we'll, I'm going to make a comment real quick is that I, I was sitting in reverse about a week ago uh, where Chris actually interviewed me. And although you were actually on my list to get on this podcast before we even uh, had our conversation, so I'm happy it just worked out timing wise to just get you featured on relatively short time period after you just had me on your website uh, a few days ago. So I'm super excited to have you because uh, not only have you inspired uh, me, but probably a lot of other people as you talked about through your website and giving just more nitty gritty information about our industry and to just be well versed in the know-how and knowledge base that goes beyond just the hype beasts and the sneaker newses of the world. But that's really not your primary income either. And we're going to get into that later but i actually want to start by going backwards right let's take it way back where were you born where were you raised how did you get into sneakers as a whole oh gosh um well from the moment i was a little bitty kid the first tape i brought i bought was a breakdancing tape for um and it had planet rock on it and it featured the um, Rocksteady crew. And it was pictures teaching you how to break dance because I was born in Memphis, the South, um, but I was a huge rap was just everything to me. Now, the first tape I ever bought, funny enough, the first tape I ever bought was the police synchronicity. I was really young, man. I love Sting. Anyway, <laughs> but hip hop, my second tape was you know, this break dance tape with the songs Planet Rock and I think it was Tila Rock on it. It was a bunch of different people that were on this album, man. And um, so Pumas, 
I was a big fan of Pumas. So from a kid, and then I became a huge fan of Adidas, just like everybody else and Run DMC wore them with no shoestrings in them. So my attachment to sneakers comes at the same time that any 80s and 90s baby attachment comes with Run DMC and Adidas, where everybody else was going crazy over Nike and Jordans. I was not. I liked Adidas. So I had top tens. I had rivalries. I had Ewing's, stuff like that. And that was my thing was Adidas because I was a big hip hop fan and hip hop had started turning into Michael Jordan and all this, but it wasn't quite like that at first. So I got into it because I played basketball and I loved hip hop and, you know, that kind of just transitioned into everything else, but that's way back. And Are you talking like, about like high school years? Yeah, I'm talking like, you know, middle school, elementary, then into high school. High school, I was still into Adidas. So right after high school, I went straight to the Navy. Oh, okay. And that was the first time I was able to, I had a job in high school and I did a bunch of other stuff that I shouldn't have done in high school where I got into a lot of trouble. We won't yeah, talk, talk about, about that. that. <laughs> we'll talk about that. But the, um, in the Navy, we had our first taste of like real, real money that was ours. And we were traveling all over the world. So I was on the Lincoln. I, I worked on F-14. So I was an aircraft electrician. I worked on F-14s. Wow. And um, so I was on the Abraham Lincoln aircraft carrier. So we went on Westpacs out of San Diego. So I left Memphis, went to San Diego. San Diego is where I became a man. It's where I got married. It's where I went to college. Went to San Diego State. I played basketball at San Diego City College. So that, all of that, you know, the hip hop and the love of sneakers, it translated through the Navy. And in the Navy, I would wear like Salconis and I have Lacoste Sportif. I had every brand because at that time, there was no sneaker heads. That, it didn't exist. Um, you had people like in New York that were, I guess they kind of created the culture and like Bobito Garcia came up with the, he kind of coined the phrase sneakerhead, but there was no such thing until, as far as I'm concerned, sneakerheads weren't born until the 2000s. Yeah. And anybody that kind of says, I was a sneakerhead, and they're like an 80s, 90s kid, they're lying. <laughs> but when I played college ball, my teammates were all from Chicago. I was a San Diego guy by then, this full-fledged San Diego guy, so I knew where all the outlets and stuff were. And we had to wear Reebok at San Diego City College, the Knights. And we had to wear Reebok. That was our shoe deal for the school was with Reebok. Nobody liked Reeboks. And that was 95, 96, right? So I'm aging myself now. So freshman year of college, um, everybody on the team ripped up their Reeboks. Oh, my God. Because the Jordans came out, the 11s. I was the only one still wearing team shoes. Everybody else was wearing 11s. Our point guard, Faith, um, rest in peace, my guy, Nooney. He was from D.C. He was a point guard. He had 11s. Uh, Big Wayne was our, like, all-star uh, forward, and he played at the at Oregon State. And then he came back down and played juco ball with us for a year. They all had Jordan 11s. <laughs> you know, so we're out here. We got a Reebok deal, and all these dudes are wearing Jordan 11s because they purposefully ripped their shoes up. Oh my God. So they wouldn't wear the Reeboks. It was hilarious. So I was the only one wearing the Reeboks. But 
as the season ended, and I'm gonna run my mouth if you don't cut me off. So I'm getting to no, where keep, keep it going. So the sneaker thing, what I found out was in 96, 97, when we were getting ready for sophomore year, and then I got injured. But I found out I could take my Nikes, like I had the Penny LWPs, the Air L Air Zoom LWPs, and I had like the Barclays and the David Robinsons, the Max Airs. We could take them back to Nike and get a brand new pair of shoes. So everybody would go in, play ball real hard, and then pull a seam out to go get a brand new pair of sneakers. Take them back to Nike, get the store credit, get a brand new pair of sneakers. So this was going all the way up through the late 90s. And then when I got injured, I still loved sneakers, but I was headed into my sophomore year. And I started working at a high school as an assistant coach. So I was a really young assistant coach, so I was still into sneakers. And when we needed to get sneakers and stuff, the coach would be like, Chris, you need to get us sneakers. Oh, I will get team sneakers. And then he resigned, and I became a head basketball coach as a – I didn't even have my bachelor's degree. No shit. No shit. Wow, that's incredible. And I was one of the youngest coaches in San Diego, and it showed because we sucked my first year. We <laughs> really bad. But – I could get sneakers. So we, I went with my so your players loved you. <laughs> my players loved me. So even we finished the, t the season, my first year with five players. Oh my God. Um, three seniors, two underclassmen because everybody was ineligible or they just got kicked off the team. It was horrible, but I loved that team because I learned so much in that first year. And um, for their last game, it was a home game. I bought them all Jordans, all the seniors. I bought them all Jordans, and they got their sneakers. And then the following year, I would get team shoes. And I just had an ability to get shoes in big quantities. Even at the end of the 90s, going into the 2000s, I could always get shoes. It just didn't matter. We would wear Jordans or we would wear Adidas, and I would be able to get the team shoes. And it wasn't like getting them straight from East Bay. I could just find sneakers. And I was really good at finding sneakers. But like what, what like drove you to be good at finding state? Like why? Like, was it just like a passion of yours? And you were just no, like, it was you know basketball. What? It was straight up basketball. It was, everything was for the sake of practicing, getting enough shoes. My kids didn't have money in some instances. So I would find a way to get them shoes all the time. And the kids that could get shoes, they got whatever they wanted. But team shoes, I was doing oh. it because people needed shoes it wasn't what were you doing for I mean I don't know I guess but I get I have this presumption that like if you're a coach you don't really get paid that well like what were you doing for income back then like to, no, especially no. to be able to front shoes for for your kid. I was a computer tech for the San Diego City School District you have to remember before I went to college I was in the Navy as an aircraft electrician so I carried that same skill over to the San Diego Unified School District where I worked on computers Gotcha. So I worked as a teacher's assistant, but I repaired the computers at the school. So you were getting paid on the tech side coach and the because I worked for the school. Yeah. yeah. I so you. I was on the tech side. But the um, this was heading into the 2000s, and I was finishing up my bachelor's degree, and then I was getting ready to go to graduate school, and I was still coaching. So I was still able to get shoes. And um, where the sneaker career comes into play, is around 2004, I came back, I moved back to Memphis, I finished up graduate school, had my master's in fine arts and creative writing, bachelor's in English, associate's degree psychology. So I have all these degrees, I'm good. 
I get a job at a HBCU here in Memphis and I come back to Memphis, but I'll have to leave my basketball team. So I didn't want to leave San Diego. It was like, it was like death to me. It was like, I'm never leaving San Diego. And we ended up coming here because it was a chance to be a tenure track professor at a college. And I was like, well, it's, it's time to go ahead and go. And uh, when I came back here, I missed basketball. So I started a website called Center Court Basketball. What year was that? That was 2004, 2005. Okay. So Center Court Basketball was around the same time that I hooked up with a guy and I got the license for a company called Showshot. Now, Showshot was a play on and one. It was a street ball concept, but the guy had pretty much given up on it and it had failed. So he was like, here, you can have a license and you can do whatever you want with it. So I was like, well, I'm starting this basketball website. It's a recruitment website. So while I was teaching full time, I was like, well, I'll start this basketball recruitment website. And that'll at least let me still be attached to basketball. What was like the main purpose behind the you said a recruitment? Were you just like writing about players? I was going out. I would work all day, teach at the college, grade papers and all of that. And then on Monday nights, I would go to a high school game. Tuesday nights, I'd go to a junior college game. Um, Thursday nights, i go to a junior college game in Mississippi. Um, Saturdays, I would go to a junior college game. Friday night, i go to a high school game. I would record the game, break down the footage, do a play-by-play -play of the game, write an article, and keep track of all the players at both schools where I shot the video. So in 2004, 2005, I ran a recruitment website that helped kids get scholarships. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. People, people, there's like this huge kind of vacuum for sports for the kids who are not the top ranked kids. <laughs> right. Now, this is something that when you see me write about basketball on the website where a lot of people are writing about like sneaker sales and they don't understand what's happening with basketball. The reason I have a certain amount of knowledge is because I was a college recruiter. I was a high school head coach. I was um, a scout. I sent guys to Division That's One, good. Division Two, II, Division Three, NAI. I sent guys to college up and down the different colleges. By the time I finished running Center Court basketball, I had sent over a hundred guys to college on basketball scholarships. Hell yeah! So it was a really, really good. It ran from 2004 to 2009, <laughs> but in 2005, the guy that I was working with with the license. I was like, yo, I need uniforms. I need uniforms. These, you know, high school coaches, all of these kids, I was bringing them in, putting them in the uniforms for show shot, and they were wearing the uniforms back to the high schools and the college and the high school coaches was like, yo, where those uniforms come from? And so I started getting uniform orders for the business. So the guy I got the license for was making the uniforms. Now, I didn't care about that stuff. All I cared about was, was what I was doing. Well, we made a sneaker the following year. I took out a loan a small business loan and I got the sneakers made and I brought the sneakers into the U S so I imported my first sneaker in 2006. So I had my own shoe while everybody else was like, I'm a sneakerhead," and they were going out getting staple. I see the hat and they were getting staple in the pigeon dunks and people were like lining up for shoes. I actually owned my own shoe company. So when people were saying they were sneaker heads and I'm, I got heat and this is when, Hype B started and when yep. Nike talk was popping and all of this stuff, 
I had show shot. It was my shoes. I had 1,200 pairs of shoes that were imported in from China. They were here in my garage, stacked up. I had college basketball teams driving their buses on my street at the house, getting out and getting sneakers. Oh my God. Now, hold on, hold on, hold on. Chris, time out, time out. That was a, that, that last like a lot. was a lot of information. Yeah. We're, we're, let, I gotta ask you, right? So you, you, you move back to Memphis, you get yeah. a full-time job, a tenured gig out of college. You're doing that, you're working all day. You're obviously wired differently. I mean, I've only spoken to you twice now, so it, it, you're wired differently. Why are you going to different, why are you doing this recruitment website? What, what, what drove you to help these kids to work night? basketball. <laughs> love basketball. When I had to leave San Diego, the team that I had built, right, it was a neighborhood team. Yeah. There was no recruitment. There was none of this stuff. This was a neighborhood team. It doesn't exist anymore at the high school level. People get recruited all the way down to elementary now. You have to play AAU ball, travel ball. I hated the concept of AAU and travel basketball. I hated it because it was professionalizing the game that I loved, and it took the love out of the game as far as I was concerned. And everybody was fighting for money so they could get on the road, so they could get seen. I wasn't coaching anymore, so I was like, well, how do I help, help players, in particular my players that I left back in San Diego? So I was like, okay, if I start a recruitment website, I can get my players from San Diego scholarships to different schools. But like, what? But still, like, what's what's your goal in all? Is it is it is it? Are you are you money driven? Was it just like to inspire people? Was it just to help people? Like, that was it. Helping that's it. kids, that's man. Was getting these kids scholarships. That was the whole thing. So, really, I mean, that there's there's got to be something said about that. I mean, you're you're working basically two jobs just to. And it's really incredible because you even you, you hinted at you have a degree in writing and, and all this in English and all these things. So you're really putting it to use now. Just you're elevating it. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a different form of writing. It wasn't writing novels yeah, yeah, yeah. or getting published at the college. It was writing about players. And because I could write really well, the college coaches liked reading the reports. So I was, by 2008, I did, 2007, 2008, I did my first All-American camp. It's 100 Holy players. Shit. I brought them all to Memphis. They got show shot uniforms. They had show shot shoes on, the ones that could fit them. Well, a lot of the dudes were like 6'10", 6'11". They went to a prep school. But the guys that could fit them, they were in my uniforms, my shoes. I sat there for eight hours for three days over the course of this camp. We had a championship game and all of that stuff. And um, pictures were taken. The whole, so I would take these kids and then I would follow those kids out to their high schools. So if you came into the camp, you could be the last kid getting in the game on the end of the bench. But if you came to that camp, I went to at least three or four of your high school games during the season. And I videotaped, if you got in the last three minutes, right? Um, and the coach really didn't care about your game that much. I had a kid named Jamal DePriest, right? And I remember him so well because coach would put him in the last 30 seconds of the game. For some reason, he just didn't like the kid. Huh. I don't know why and I don't know what, but that 30 seconds where I saw that kid, I was like, whoa, this cat came did a crossover, went behind his back, and dished the ball. 
He didn't try to score his last 30 seconds that he was going to get to play. He dished the ball and another kid scored. And then he took off back down the court, turned his back at the half court, transitioned, and ran backwards on defense. And I was like, why the hell isn't that kid playing? So you made a highlight reel of 30 seconds. 30 seconds. I went to four of his games. I had a minute-long clip of him doing one thing in each of those games in 30 seconds. I brought him into the camp. I got another six minutes of video. I put it all together. He got a junior college scholarship. He went in on he went on to play. Gosh, where did he go? I think he went to an NAIA school afterwards. You know that kid is an associate head coach now at Carson, I think at Carson Newman. Wow. This is how long it's been. It's been, you know, since 2010. So it's 10 years. He's an assistant head coach now. He's a kid that barely got playing time on his high school team. That's why I did it. That's why I did it. I just, well, I just got fun. I just got goosebumps. That is wild. That's a that is a you just you just have to present opportunities. That's it. You just do. When I tell you one of the best camps I did when Hurricane Katrina hit. I did a basketball camp in New Orleans three weeks before it hit. Wow. And it was right before school started. Spencer Davis got a scholarship. I sent him to, um, he didn't get a scholarship because California doesn't do scholarships. I sent him to Oxnard. A bunch of those kids that were in that camp, I tracked and stayed with them and made sure they all went on to play basketball somewhere. One kid ended up at Lafayette, University of Louisiana Lafayette. One was at Miami. Um, there was kids in that camp that went on and played ball somewhere. And I tracked and stayed with those kids. Some of them went to a school in Kentucky, Simmons. And I did Simmons, I think, cut their basketball program. But that was the whole point was to get kids. I missed my kids in San Diego. I even brought my kids in San Diego out to Tennessee to go to junior college. One of them came out here. One went to Illinois. Uh, another kid stayed in San Diego. One went to New Mexico Military Institute. Man, do you do you um we're gonna we're gonna get into the fact that you ha you have you've uh, published books, but do you get into all this like in your books and your writing? Um, no, you I've not written a book about center court basketball. I didn't. Somebody should should do a full write up on this because it's 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 really state of the art stuff. It sounds like, and it's a, it definitely ahead of its time. Like people do that today. I think Arch does a little bit of that. Like you've transitioned in a new way. Yeah, like, you're well, talking about doing something just for the good of doing something. It was, um, well, you got to remember, I also had show shot. So well, I had okay, nine let's... colleges. Nine colleges bought the uniforms. The, God, the coaches that were coming to the site to look at players, they were also buying uniforms. So let's get into that side, right? So you start this business, right? right? It's apparel and, and shoes? And footwear. So it's uniforms, sweatsuits, whole nine. I eventually, I had nine colleges wearing the uniforms. I had God knows how many high schools wearing the uniforms. So now Show Shot isn't just this little tiny thing. Show Shot is in Bounce Magazine run by Bobito Garcia. Show Shot ends up in Dime Magazine. Um, Show Shot uh, ends up on Madison Square Garden TV. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, Rock Rubber 45s, Bobito Garcia's documentary. He's wearing a Show Shot jersey with the Puerto Rican legend. That's awesome. Yeah, so it's growing like this. Well, the guys saw how it was growing and was like, oh, hell, let me come back and take that back and do something with it. And when he came back and took the license, I lost everything around Showshot. It was gone. 
2008, I went bankrupt, lost everything. I was still doing show shot. I'm not show shot, but sitting court basketball, but I didn't have shoes. I didn't have uniforms. They changed the name of the company. Oh, it was, it was part of the same like license agreement? Yeah, I didn't understand licensing, uh, which gets us into the business side of things. But so that was really like your first business, right? Yeah, poorly run. Uh, <laughs> basketball was very poorly run. Um, the potential that that website had, it would have been the first basketball YouTube station had I took the videos and put them on YouTube. Instead, I kept all of the videos native. They were all on my website. So you didn't have to leave the website. There were no ads on the website, nothing. So the website was attracting God knows how much traffic. But I wasn't generating you weren't any getting anything off of it. Nothing. I wasn't making anything. There was no ad revenue, none of that stuff. Did you make money off the, the clothing or the shoes? A little bit, just enough to break even on. Not yeah. really. You know, you yeah. lose money on that stuff. And when they took it, we were in the process of getting the cantilever from, I think, um, Avia had lost a copyright on the cantilever cushioning system from the old basketball shoe in the 80s. They had the cantilever cushioning. And uh, we were in the process of getting that and redesigning and making a new shoe. The name of the company was changed from Showshot to Marquee, and then it became Marquee Athletics Group. I had nothing at all to do with it anymore, but I still had to pay for that $20,000 loan. But this is the worst part. The guy that I was working with on the license, when I bought the shoes, they were supposed to come to Memphis. He prevented the shoes and stopped them in Portland. And then he was like, I'll, I'll ship the shoes. I was like, no, you know, I need my shoes here so I can do what I'm doing. I'm like, what are you doing? But he still had control over certain parts, especially when he saw that things were moving in a different direction. Uh, I had to pay to get the shoes shipped to Memphis. So I had a gap of like $4,000 for 1,200 shoes. It cost me 17 grand, right? So I paid the 17 and then I had like $21,000. So I had like four grand left over. That was going to be my room to build the business at 4,000. And um, I left the college. I just walked away from the college. And I was like, I'm going to focus on this thing and do this. And then it was all over. I didn't have a job. I didn't have the shoes. But at the same time that I was selling my show shot shoes, now we're getting into the part that you're talking about. I was also going to the Nike clearance store here in Memphis and around Memphis and buying sneakers and selling them on eBay. And I was also selling them at flea markets. What year is this? This is right around 2006, 2007, when I was doing all the basketball <laughs> stuff and teaching. I was still selling sneakers. What year so did I you stop this. teaching and you like kind of went all in on, on yourself, really? All in on myself was 2011. Okay. So, so we got problem. like four years in between. I was selling at flea markets. I was selling on eBay. And I pretty much had to run of the city. Nobody else was selling sneakers. And, and, and you, you buy, l l let's clear it up, right? So you say selling on eBay, you're flipping sneakers. Flipping sneakers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before anybody, you know, people were selling sneakers on eBay at the time. I was selling them more in the streets, at flea markets, stuff like that. But I also had my own shoes left over. So I was selling a little bit of jerseys, all kinds of stuff at this flea market. Well, the flea market had fakes. 
So in the back of the flea market, the guy that owned the flea market put me at the front <laughs> because I had receipts and I had real shoes. So, so as soon as people walked in, walked in, they saw real shoes and they'd be like, well, how much are you selling your shoes for? I'd be like 150. And they'd be like, oh, hell no, that's too much. And I was like, yeah, but you know, that Jordans, Nikes, you know, they're you know, real. Them, it is what it is. They're real. Well, he was using me as a buffer for the fake stuff. So people were coming into the flea market, and this flea market was huge, man. And by the time I realized what was happening, this is moving into like 2009, 2010. The um, flea market, the dudes that were selling the fakes were making three grand a weekend. Sheesh. I was probably making 500 bucks on the weekend. But my eBay in like 2010 started picking up. My eBay was doing really good. I was doing like $7,000 a month on eBay. I was still teaching at the time because I took a high school job. But then I left and took a consulting job at a high school down in Mississippi. So I did that for a year and then I came back and taught at a college. So this gets us to 2010. So I just sped us up to where my actual money is made still today. It's my research, it's my money making and everything else. 2010, um, eBay started doing a bunch of weird stuff. And the people that were on eBay at that time remember this. They were kicking people off. They were kicking accounts off. People were selling knockoffs. They were doing all kinds of stuff. And it was just this really crooked kind of thing happening on eBay. And they closed my account. And I was like, dang, you know, I'm doing so good. They closed the account. This is going into 2011. Well, Amazon had bought Zappos in 2008, 2009. So Amazon had started putting shoes, sneakers on Amazon. But you had to get approved to get on Amazon's third-party seller central marketplace. So now at this point, I'm starting to learn about business because in 2009 is when I started Arch. So the Arch website. is a completely different sneaker company. I started a new sneaker company called Arch. My own shoes. I'm making my own shoes now. No show shot that's out of the way. Arch is all mine. I own it. I'm designing the shoes. I'm making the shoes, having them imported into uh, the country. I got a nice thing going with my shoes. I have my t-shirts and shorts. So I had Arch. I wasn't really doing the basketball stuff anymore. That started coming down. And I was focusing on Arch because I was selling so many sneakers and I was still teaching. So I just focused on that and selling the shoes. Well, it took 2010, I got bounced off of eBay and I was like, man, forget it, I'm going to Amazon. So I go to Amazon and I apply for it Right. in February of 2011. Amazon writes back, we need you to set your website up this way. So Arch-USA, I have to make all of the shoe pictures 1,000 pixels. I have to make all of the web pages white background. I had to reformat the entire website. So while I'm also selling, making my own shoes, selling the Nikes and Adidas and all of that stuff, um, I'm running my website. I'm the webmaster. I'm consulting at this high school. I go back and I teach at this college again. I'm doing all of that stuff. And I'm, I have to conform to all of this stuff from Amazon. And Amazon finally approves me in October. Holy cow. 2011. So it took six months. Right. So that's six months. I'm still selling on, you know, out and everything else. But this is the crazy thing. In the summer, 
the flea market that we were setting up at gets raided by Homeland Security. Oh, shit. They arrest all the immigrants who are selling the fake purses and the fake shoes. I got all of my receipts. You're good. I'm clean. I'm good. I yeah. just pack my stuff up and leave. They arrest the people who have all the fake stuff. So they raid this entire flea market. They arrest everybody. Everybody. People running all over the place and all of that, right? Well, I'm transitioning on into Amazon. And this is where the money starts, right? Up until this point, I'm struggling. You know, just struggling, not making a lot of money. And well, I mean, uh, let's uh, let's pause there for a second, right? Like, mm -hmm. are you saying you're struggling? Is that just due to like the financial crisis of 2009, 2010? Like, it, no, you know, the funny thing it? is that didn't hit me as hard because I had gone bankrupt in 2007, 2008 anyway. So the financial crisis didn't hit me. I had to save my house because I left the college and this guy took the company back over. Right. So the financial crisis didn't affect me at all. You're just uh, hustling. Yeah, I was just out hustling. So I didn't have a regular paying job. I was out selling whatever sneakers I could sell. I was out selling whatever my art shoes, I was selling those. And um, so I finally got on Amazon in October of 2011. Right. But it took me a while to figure out how to use the seller central marketplace on Amazon. I had to take the pictures. They kept on taking the listings down because they didn't look the right way and they weren't described the right. It was just, it was a learning process. Yeah. And um, I was able to get on and start selling right before Black Friday. Okay. 2011. So Black Friday, 2011 to the end of the year, I make 50 grand. Nice. So basically 40 days, I do $50,000. <laughs> Not too shabby. Not too shabby. And I'm <laughs> like, whoa, wait a minute. All of this time. So I'm still doing arch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now I'm like, man. I'm not going to a flea market. I'm not setting up. I'm not selling in the streets. I'm taking all of these Nikes and stuff I got. I'm going to sell these joints on Amazon. Right. So I started selling on Amazon. And the following year, which is 2012, I go into the, um, the dean's office over at the college. And I tell him, I'm like, I'm not teaching anymore. You know, I'm, I'm done. And he's like, can you teach one class? I said, you know what? I'll teach African-American uh, literature. And I'll teach it at this time, and then that'll be it. I'm never teaching again. So he's like, deal. You teach the class, I appreciate it. And I taught that one class in 2012, and all of my time was dedicated to selling sneakers. I was still doing arch. Yep. I was still making my own shoes, but I started selling my sneakers on 2012. I did just over, I did, I think I did 500 grand in resale. And that's your first taste of like, oh yeah. <laughs> now, this is the tragic part. When you look back on this time and you think about it, there was no stadium goods. <laughs> there was no GOAT. There was no StockX. There was none of this stuff. There was Flight Club, right? I was doing half a million. That's crazy. Right? Had I sold it on my website. Think about that. 
There was no stadium goods. There was no urban necessities, no J, you know, JJ and all these different people that are famous and rich now. Had I sold on my website in 2012, instead of selling on Amazon, because the following year I did half a million again. So in two years, I had done a million dollars on Amazon. Now, do you think that, that Amazon definitely like provided like the platform for, for, for customers though? Or do you think that you saw repeat customers over, over time? Well, um, I knew the people, I didn't know the people, but I could see the names. Yeah, yeah, Amazon yeah. does not allow you to contact the consumer through Seller okay. Central Marketing. Gotcha. Okay. You don't, those are not your customers. Those are Amazon's customers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what if, I'm saying. Yeah, if you write those customers, they will ban your account. Now, that tells you all you need to know about the fact that this was not a business. <laughs> it's still a straight up hustle. Although I had to learn how to take pictures, I had to learn how to write copy, I had to learn how to do all of the different stuff. Totally. And I was still doing art, so I had my own shoes, and my shoes were doing really good on Amazon. Notice I keep saying on Amazon. Well, in 2012, 2013, $1 million, I'm popping, everything's rolling. 2014, Amazon created brand registries. And this is why when people are like, man, Chris really writes about a lot of different stuff on the website. Well, I can write about a lot of different stuff because I was kind of there at each step of the way of where resale was taking place. I was doing resale in the street. I was doing resale on eBay. I did resale on Kixify. I did resale on all of these different platforms. I did resale on everybody's platform except my own. Damn. So when we start looking at what Amazon did in 2014, Amazon opened up Seller Central to China. Influx of counterfeits came in. Amazon then created what was called a brand registry. Now, all of this stuff is in the first book, Nike's Consumer Direct Offense, Amazon and StockX. That first book, I wrote about all of this in that book. So you can read this. I won't repeat it if people read the book. They can see what happened and how resale and retail shifted. And at the same time, I was- Where's the uh, best place to buy the book? Um, you could go to the website. So you go to arch-usa.com. You can go not to Amazon. Yeah, you can uh, buy it on Amazon. You can. <laughs> he says that so reluctantly. <laughs> go to his website, people. <laughs> buy the book. But I mean, even if you do, I set my website up as an affiliate. So if you buy my book from Amazon, the percentage that they take, I get it back as an affiliate. Okay. <laughs> because now I realize how stupid it is. Um, and I don't keep any books in stock, so I don't make the books and keep them in stock and ship them myself. I just didn't feel like doing all of that. Gotcha. Um, so Amazon started the brand registry, but more important, uh, 2012, right? I had been buying from the Nike clearance store since 2006, reselling and doing all of this stuff. And, um, Nike began pulling a lot of the stuff out of the Nike clearance store and putting it online because right around 2012, Nike did a lot of work on Nike.com. Nike's work on Nike.com disrupted Foot Locker's work on Footlocker.com. And I saw it and I was like, whoa, that's weird. But I didn't think anything about it. 
I was buying my shoes from a lot of different places and I got jacked into a small chain of stores and I became the funnel for that small chain of stores uh, when Nike forced those stores in 2013, Nike came in and said, hey, you need to change all of your stores. Uh, I need some LeBron pictures and some Jordan pictures. I need this store to look better. And those redesigns on those stores at that small chain cost $100,000 per store. Damn. Seven stores. Nike forcing those stores to redesign those stores to keep their Nike Jordan brand account, to keep their tier, forced that guy to close two of the stores. So it went down to five stores. He had seven, they closed five. At the same time here in Memphis, a bunch of small stores that had Jordan brand accounts lost their accounts. So this is 2013, 2014. Nobody's paying attention. All of these stores are closing. And then the sports authority goes bankrupt, right? So this is heading into 2014, 2015. And um, the store that I was hustling with that had five stores now, at the end of 2015, my dude came in, had owned the stores. He was like, yo, I'm selling the stores. And I'm like, whoa, you know, that cuts me off of my funnel. <laughs> I lose a whole lot of sneakers. But I also realized that he had to sell because Nike was taking account. So there was another chain of stores in the same state that I was messing with, and Nike took their account. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's something bigger going on because the brand gating happened on Amazon where Amazon went with the brands and said, hey, you open a brand registry, you can get rid of the fakes. Right. Because now you can control your product on our platform. It was a lie. You couldn't control the fakes. The fakes simply took different pictures without the swoosh on it and named it something weird, but they showed up in the search with authentic shoes. So there was all of this weird stuff happening. And I was like, Nike's making a move. And at that time, I just was like, okay, this is a direct-to-consumer move, and Nike's getting ready to do something big. That's where Arch became what it is now, a news site. So I started writing about all the stores that were closing, all the mom and pops that had lost their Jordan brand accounts. I started doing research because I was a researcher anyway as a professor. So I started doing research. I started looking at marketing. And then I started looking at these flash sales. And I started looking at Amazon launching private label, all of this stuff. And it was just like, Nike's changing everything. So in 2014, 2015, I started writing on the website. Right. And that's how you found me because I've been writing since 2015. I've written close to 4,000 articles on the sneaker industry. Wow. Holy Nobody God. knows who I am. I'm not an that, and that That's why to me, you're like the perfect candidate for this podcast is because I love highlighting people to give them a platform to share their story who a lot of people should be knowing about or eventually will get to that peak and blow up. And we're just having a conversation before that happens. <laughs> time, just hasn't, time just hasn't caught up, Chris. <laughs> me and you both. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, um, it's man, but you've been, you, so you, you've been also flipping sneakers for 10 plus years. 
since 2006. Yeah, 14 so years, man. A long time. You've been running your years. website for a long time. You've been selling online for a long time. Now, when we were chatting um, a couple weeks ago, or a couple weeks ago, a couple few days ago, mm-hmm. uh, or the first time was last Sunday, I think it was, and you mentioned that you, I think you went bankrupt for the second time in 2014 or 15. 2017. 17. Okay. So my dates 2017, 2018. I think that's, so, that was a really pivotal point that you talked about and you were really passionate about. I would love for you to like reshare that story because it was, it was really incredible. So, um, remember I gave you kind of all of this pretext of what was happening. Amazon, private label, Amazon. Um, what was it called? The, um, brand registry. All of this stuff is in the book. I get into it in the book, but it's 2015 when this chain sold to a bigger chain 2016 by that time on amazon my sales had gone from millions all the way down to 250,000 wiped out now by the end of 2016 amazon made changes to the platform that required all seller central marketplaces to have the same shipping standards and return standards as Amazon. Oh, shit. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize this. Um, my returns at that point on Amazon went to 30%. So you now have, and this is, people talk about learning how to start a business, right? <laughs> and I tell people that StockX is the worst thing to happen to kids who are talking about being you know, business people and flipping shoes. StockX and Gold, they've made it easy. You no longer have to do your diligence in what you do in this kind of flipping. Flipping is a complete hustle now. It's the person who's got the most money who can get to it fastest. Period. But 2016, Amazon had changed over the policies. My returns went to 30%. Amazon takes 15%. So no matter what you're selling, Amazon takes 15% in sneakers. All right. So you're losing 15%, 30% of your product that's coming back damaged or worn, and you are stuck with it, which means now I had to go back to eBay to try to sell the stuff that I couldn't sell because somebody had worn it. And Amazon sides with the customer. Amazon has an extremely high rate of chargebacks on sneakers. So you would get claims. Amazon only pays you every two weeks with a three-day lag time, which means you get paid once a month. Yeah, see, these are the small things that people don't talk about, but this is where not knowing how to run a business catches up with you. Yeah, and it started catching up with me around 2016, and in 2016, Amazon changed the back end, and from like Black Friday all the way through the end of the year in 2016, I had no sales, none during the holiday season because Amazon had changed the setting that required me to do free shipping, so none of my products showed up until I clicked this setting. And then there was a glitch on the back end that erased my entire store on Amazon. And this is your this is your primary source of income. This is my only source of income. 
only source of income. Because you're not teaching so, anymore. You're not doing anything. This is all I do. So now for a month and a half, I make nothing. But it also goes back to me having loans. And I took loans when the business started going down. I took loans out and I took the wrong type of loans. And this is a whole different podcast. If you want to get into something about loans and no, no, the wrong no. type of dude, that was the worst thing I could have. And that's why every time I hear somebody tell somebody to take a loan out, you're like I cringe. I'm yeah, like, you've been dude, through it. Don't tell people to do that. That is not the right path. And I don't care who's saying it. So 2016, I had taken out these loans. We get to 2017, I don't sell any sneakers, man. I'm driving Lyft. So I got three degrees. I've been a college professor. I'm writing on the website explaining the story of everything that's happening to me. And people are starting to see it and read it, but they don't fully understand because I'm never telling people what's really going on. I drive Lyft all of 2017, man. I sell $14,000 in shoes. StockX had just launched. I sell $14,000 worth of shoes. So I sell $14,000 worth of shoes and I drive Lyft the entire year. But I spend that entire year writing about everything that happened to me from the moment I started center court basketball in 2004 all the way up to 2017. I write about everything on the website and I start compiling information. 2018. Just, on, before you jump to 2018, just to give people perspective, mm -hmm. do you remember how much you made selling sneakers the year before 2017? 2017, I think I made $250,000. So you go from 250 to 14? To 14,000 and making money driving Lyft. <laughs> Talk about a lifestyle change. Oh, the lifestyle change came when I went from the million, 2012, 2013, down to 300,000, down to 200,000. Then I did 750,000. In 2016, I did 250 and I did 500,000 in wholesale. Damn. Right? Nope, that was 2015. 2016, I did 250,000. I know and this sounds like a lot of big numbers and people might be like, damn, you made a lot of money. How'd you end up broke? Um, that's a completely different podcast because it would take a bit of time to explain it. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously I, like everybody's even like when you, when you, somebody gives you like a salary, like what they make, it's like, there's, there's a lot more that goes into life than just like what you, yeah. what you make. everybody's yeah. got a different circumstance. You can't judge people based on like these big numbers because it's not the you full never story. Should. It's not the full story, but you never anyway, you, never but anyway you hit a big drop and then so big you did the time. You spend an entire year reflecting, writing more specifically, building yeah. more of your website, building more content. What mm -hmm. happens in 2018? 2018, I decided to take on a challenge because I look at StockX and I'm like, wow, that's probably the most efficient platform I've ever seen in resale. Now, you have to remember, I've done Kixify, I've done eBay, I've done Amazon, I've done all of these third-party platforms, right? I see StockX and I'm like, wow, they, they are on to something. Let me see what happens if I sell on StockX this year. Now, at this point, I've also realized that resale is not how I want to make my money. The website has become front of my mind as a media company. So I'm like, okay, Arch is starting to get a little bit of traction. People are seeing it. 
I started getting flown out to different places to do white papers and write about the sneaker industry. So now I'm starting to see what all of my pain and suffering has led to. It has enabled me to tell this story and to write about the sneaker industry with more detail than anybody else in the sneaker industry. So I take advantage of being that writer and I start doing that in 2018. But I also go back, look at the neighbor, look at, look at the whole kind of setup of resale in Memphis and what's happening and the surrounding area. And I'm like, all right, I can get shoes there. I can get shoes there. I'm going to sell again, but I'm only going to sell on stock X. And at the time I was building what I called the um, Arts Times House of Kicks Network with a peer of mine who I taught how to run his website. And I was like, hey, do me a big favor. Don't use StockX in 2018. And he was like, why? And I was like, well, don't use it. He was like, well, I'm not going to use it anyway. I make more money on eBay. Well, I knew, and I didn't say it, which kind of sucks. I was like, eBay's dead. I didn't tell him that. I said, eBay's dead. Amazon's dead. You're not going to make that much money. This is what I'm telling myself, but I needed a control and a variable. Right for this experiment to work. So I took 2018, all of 2018, he sold on Amazon, eBay, Kixify, wherever he could sell sneakers on his website. I only sold on StockX and I wrote articles and I did all of this research. 2018 ended and I think it's in the book. He did, I think, $65,000 in sales, Okay, which he was cool with. He was like, this is okay, but this is getting harder, man. It's hard. That's competitive. I was like, More competitive. I told him, I was like, um, you know how much I sold? He's like, what? This is the end of 2018. It says $600,000. Damn. 12 months. 18 months on StockX, I did a million dollars. Shit. Chris is back. <laughs> I'm back, but not really, because I know now, after all of this time, I realize now all of the mistakes that I made, and I say, right. nothing lasts forever. Save your money. This Especially as somebody who's been through the ringer a couple times. <laughs> Like it could end at any time. Well, the guy that I was working with 2019, I sit down and I say, you know what? I have to write a book about this. But the book can't just be about the idea of selling a million dollars worth of shoes. Well, that's not even that's not even it. I was like, the book can't be about just the idea of selling on StockX. It has to talk about everything. But more important, it has to talk about the big failure that I made, which was. I've run websites since 2004, a basketball website, a sneaker website, content website. At no time did I put the same energy into the website as I did selling sneakers. Right. So 2019, I was like, okay, let's figure this out and let's think about it. And I took everything that I've been writing, I repurposed it and I moved it around and I turned it into the book, the Nike Consumer Direct Offense book. And in 2019, my profile on LinkedIn was flat. And then it did this. 
And then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm like at 1,800 followers on LinkedIn. And I'm like, what the hell? But people are now flying me to New York, St. Louis, Portland. And I'm like, all right, I said I wanted the website to be this. It's actually becoming this. But you know, even then, I had never written a business plan for the website. You want to know when I finally wrote a business plan? When's that? A month ago. <laughs> it took all of this stuff through 20, 2018, 600,000, right? 2019 on StockX, 725,000. Okay. Something In like that. Yeah. Um, all of this stuff. And it still took me till now, basically four weeks ago. To write a business plan. To write a business plan that says, Arch is a catalyst for conversation around the sneaker industry discussing marketing, um, sneaker design, and teaching people about the aspects of the industry that are not being shared by bigger analysts and websites. I have my mission statement. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you, you mentioned companies, brands, other people flying you out, doing some public speaking, talking about uh, not only your book, but things you've been through. And this is exactly where uh, we, we met, but we actually didn't meet, but this is the first time I heard you speak, right? And you've really captured my attention. It was in Portland last August, August of 2019. Um, and you're speaking about, you know, investing in yourself. And the one key takeaway, which really changed my mindset about, you know, what I want in my career and things like that, is that nobody's going to invest in you like you can. And you're like, if you don't buy yourname.com, you're not doing yourself any justice. And for, or something along, I'm paraphrasing. Whatever that was, it clicked in my head like a light. Then literally, I flew back home and I bought davidfuller.com. Super smart. And and I don't. It was. It just like was like, man, I don't know what this guy's been. And then I started following you on Twitter. Started. We got connected on LinkedIn. And then literally, you talk about a full year, right? A full year later, we're finally getting connected. So, people, it things take time. I mean, you're you're yes. definite proof of that. I mean, I don't know how. Uh, how old you are, whatever, but you've gone through some shit. And, and to me, you're still on the, on a rise in this industry mm -hmm. and you're excited about it. Like, cause you haven't learned everything. You're still, you're still offering things to major companies and brands about looking at their own business models from a different perspective. And there's something to be said about that. You know, the, the thing was, I'm a writer at the court, right? I saw a hole. I was like, I go to um, sneaker barter shorts. I go to Hype Beast. I go to Complex. I go to you know Nice Kicks. I go to all these websites, and some of them high snobiety. All of these websites, and I see this information, and I'm like, nobody's writing about the business aspects of this stuff. So people don't know that there are jobs outside of flipping sneakers. They think the sneaker industry is flipping sneakers and designing. That's all they think the sneaker industry is. They don't realize that there are uh, tech people, that there are you know data analysts, there are people in sales, there are people in visual merchandising. They don't know any of this stuff. All they know is design, flipping sneakers. And I'm like, that's not fair to an industry that really has taken sneaker culture mainstream mm -hmm. 
and I was like, there's a hole. There's a place for a website that simply is smarter. But like I said, I still hadn't written a, written a business plan. What I had done since 2011, 2012, was you gotta remember on Amazon from 2012 to like 2015, I'd done almost 2.5 million. Damn. So I had made money. I started writing books at that time that nobody on LinkedIn is even aware of those books. Nobody's even aware of those books. They don't exist. They're on Amazon, but they don't exist. I don't talk about them. I don't share them. And one of the biggest mistakes that I've made so far is the fact that I've never referred people back to those books. What I was telling you guys in Portland last year came from those three books. The first book was, um, gosh, what was the first? The second book was the 30 day project. The first book was one hour to wealth. One hour to wealth was take one hour every day devoted to your passion. Okay. And what happens is over the course of time, that one hour develops into something powerful. The 30 day project was take 30 days, set aside and do a one hour a day consistently without fail every day, devote one hour to something that you're really interested in doing. In 30 days, you're going to have a project done. Okay. So that was the second book. And then the third book, I was losing all of my money. And that book was called Curse Word Coming. Um, gosh, what was the name of that book? It was hilarious too. Um, you can swear on here, by the way. Huh? You could swear on this. Oh, okay. I'm trying to avoid that. Gosh, what was the name of the book? See, and I just forgot the name of the book, man. And it's so funny that I forget the name of that book. But gosh, where is this thing, man? Because it's, oh, fuck speeches and inspiration. Where do I get the money to start? <laughs> And you can tell I don't talk about the books. Do you still buy these books? Yeah, the books are available. They're all online. They're all they're all on Amazon. I have an author's page on Amazon, but um, I have a page on AALBC, which is African American Literature and Book Club, AALBC.com, where you can go there. And I was a bestseller on that website for fiction. Wow. Now, the whole time I'm running the basketball camps, I was writing fiction, too. So I had these fictional books, these relationship books and stuff like that. And my thesis was a, I did a book of poetry and I did a tons of, I got like 12 books that are out there, just out there, but I've never done anything with them. So that last book though was when I was losing the money and that's why I named it. I was like, you know, fuck speeches. Where do I get the money to start? Because you know what happens when you're starting to lose money after you've had a bunch of money and you start looking around trying to see how you can get more money and you start looking at people like I was big on like Gary V, right? And I was like, you know, that dude ain't really telling me shit, man. Where do I get this money? You know, I need to get busy. I need to get some money in my pocket. So I was like, you know, screw following all of these gurus. I'm going to write this book. And if people run across it, they'll have a handbook that tells them exactly what to do to make money. Because I knew what to do to make money but I also knew that I had to write the book from where I was at that time, which means I had no money in my pocket. So when you read the book, it gives you an entire chapter on if you like baking, right? This is the first chapter, kids or not. If you like baking, you go on Facebook, you bake a series of muffins. 
You do a chocolate and bacon muffin. You do a pineapple and ham muffin. And you sit down and you make six muffins and you take pictures of them and you put them on your Facebook page and you tell everybody, yo, I'm making custom muffins with these fantastic flavors. I got a chocolate bacon muffin. I got a jalapeno um, tater tot muffin. I got a, you know, and people are going to be like, oh shit, I'll buy those muffins. <laughs> and you say, I'm going to shoot you an invoice from PayPal because you can have your PayPal. You already got your PayPal set up. You can invoice people. I'm going to invoice you $20. I'm going to deliver your muffins on Friday. You do the sale on Saturday, before the week of Saturday, and you get 20 people to pay you $400 to make these muffins. The cost to make those muffins right around $7. So you net $13. Right? Right. And then on that Friday, you hand deliver your muffins to those people that order. And you say, yo, take a picture and put it on your Facebook, and I'm going to be doing the thumbs up with the muffins. <laughs> and what you just did was you started a business from zero. Yep. So I built an entire separate website under my CB Publishing, which was the publishing company, and it was called BBZ, Building a Business from Zero never did anything with it never it's just out there just floating in space you can download a business plan you can download a pro forma monthly projection sheets never did anything with it nothing at all <laughs> but the whole point is i had been writing all of this time and i had those three business books and then i wrote my last business book was another book on the sneaker industry which was going to be a joke because I had done a million dollars on StockX and didn't even try. And I was like, I ain't even trying. This is just funny. <laughs> I'm going to do a book called How to Make a Million Dollars on StockX. And it was hilarious as far as I was concerned. And at the same time, I was writing a white paper for Payless. Okay. And I was getting ready to fly to uh, Miami, right? And then COVID hit. And all of a sudden, it's not funny. And I'm like, they cancel me flying into Miami. They cancel everything falls apart. The right. white paper, they're like, well, we don't need the white paper. I don't get paid for it or I don't get to fly to Miami. They, they Well, you can do whatever you want with the paper. Just take our name out of it. And that's why I don't care about saying it now. But the new book, which is the sneaker retail book, that book, is a combination of what I was going to write was a funny kind of book about making a million dollars on StockX. And it turned into the reality of what we're living through with COVID and the new normal in the sneaker industry. And that book, I think, is more important than anything that I've written because what it tells you throughout that book is that the sneaker industry is saturated. There's too many people who want to be a part of it now. But that doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities. Right. But if you don't know where those opportunities are. So what is that book? Is that last most recent book out? Or do you have a projection as to when it is? Coming? No, it's out. It just it's out now. So you can buy it now. It's on the it's on the site. You can actually download it on the website for like nine bucks. <laughs> right. We're, well, don't worry. We'll we'll plug all your links and everything uh, down below for sure. Uh, obviously, at this point, 
you've shared a dose of history with a lot of people. Um, you mentioned that this last book, obviously, you think is the most important piece of writing that you've written. Yeah. This is a question I like to ask our guests is like, do you, you, you talk about writing even a business plan and you know, let's not talk about that, but like, do you, do you ever think like four five, six, ten 10 years down the road or do you kind of just take it kind of slowly at this point and just try to look a quarter mile ahead at a time? Well, the business plan. So I wrote this business plan a month ago. It's given me more clarity than I've ever had at any time. I've written business plans before, but I never follow through on those business plans. Okay. And because things change so quickly. They do. Yeah. More you know, so than ever. More so now. Yeah, man. And so I was like, you know what? I can't sit here and um, tell people to stick with, you know, this business plan, excuse me, um, stick with the business plan. However, I realize now that sitting down doing projections and writing a business plan the correct way and then following it gives you the information you need to make the best decision. So I started growth hacking. Like you had your pet projects during quarantine where you created Devonshire. I, in March 15, um, when Nike shut down and I was like, well, I'm not going to go to Nike. I won't be doing anything. I'm going to be in the house. On April uh, 1st, I was like, you know what? let's really take the website seriously because if people are flying me all over the place and having me write papers, that means people see me completely different than how I see myself. Correct. For me, it's just writing because I like writing. For other people, it's, yo, go listen to what this dude has to say because what he's saying is pretty damn important. And I didn't never, I never put two and two together. Even when people were flying me up to Harlem to go to, you know, stores, I still didn't put two and two together because I was like, man, I'm making $700,000 selling sneakers on StockX. I, I can just write and enjoy myself. And um, the new book, the sneaker, um, what's the name of this book? Uh, sneaker Resale and Retail in the New Normal. The new book, what what it did was it allowed me to sit down and look at this stuff and say fix what you're doing you know that in order for anything to succeed you have to become a media company it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter what business you're doing you have to be a media company because that's what nike is nike's a media company that happens to sell shoes so in in april i started growth hacking the website because everybody else is spending all of their time on Instagram. Everybody else is in, and I'm like, that's good, that's cool, but you can't sell your Instagram profile to someone. And the companies that had gotten investments, Hasmabadi is a blog, right? right. They got an $8.5 million investment. Um, Hypebeast is a blog. $70 million valuation because they IPO'd on the stock market in China. Complex is a blog. Blog. $200 million a year is what Complex makes. Right? You starting to get the picture here? Um, blog is starting to make a lot of sense. <laughs> StockX was campless. It was a blog. It's now a billion dollar unicorn. It was a blog. Stadium Goods, it was a sneaker site that was a blog, basically. 
now they have an investment from LVMH from Louis Vuitton. It is it is crazy. Well, Farfetch, Farfetch just came in and dropped money into a resale site. Um, everything that has gotten investments in the sneaker industry, it has not been somebody's Instagram page. It's been a blog. So over and over, there's a clear-cut example of people willing to invest into media companies. And I'm like, wait a minute. I need to grow my website and take this seriously. So I started growth hacking. And in March, the website was getting 1,000 unique visitors a month. I was cool with that. I was like, man, that's good. Until I started doing my research and I recognized that a hype beast or a complex it's 10 million visitors a month. <laughs> 10 million. So you're talking about- what you're offering is a lot more valuable. <laughs> a lot more valuable. I'm like, dude, what the hell am I doing? So now the website is at 11,000 visits per month. So from April to today, 11,000, from 1,000 to 11,000, that's still nothing right. compared to- the big boys. So what did I do? I wrote a business plan last month and I looked at the money that these sites were making. And it wasn't about the money necessarily. It was about the idea of creating something that would create jobs for people who love the sneaker industry and the things associated with it. So I actually brought my son in as a music content creator since he's on a gap year from college to drive more traffic to the website and there's more engaging material on the website. Right. I gave uh, one of the local photographers, she was like, I want to start my business. I want to get started. And I was like, well, what are you missing? She was like, I don't have anywhere to shoot. It's cost too much to rent an office. And I said, wait a minute, I could have an in-house photographer. Sure. I'll let her have the back of the office. I don't even use the back of my office here. It's just open. It's a big giant room. And I said, you can come in. She started doing photo shoots. So when, when I asked the question, like, do you think about the future? This is exactly what you're thinking about. You're trying to, to grow this really big media company or to just to uh, grow Arch uh, to, I think, I think you, a lot is just shed light on what it could become in yeah. a more powerful way than what the sneaker industry is today. Definitely a more powerful, and um, I still, I don't think way ahead anymore because that got me into trouble thinking that the money would never stop coming in. I would project how much I'm making six months from now. In sneakers and the sneaker industry, one of the biggest things that I tell people now is that when you look at point of sales data or information on the top shoes sold in the previous quarter, that may the be the most deceptive list that you can look at because sneakers are fashion. Fashion changes daily. If you are not actually selling products, there's no way for you to keep track of where the market is shifting right. because it moves so quickly that to look at data from a previous quarter is informative but it can be a deceptive, misleading set of data for a brand. And it can funnel a brand in a direction that's no longer where things are headed. So looking out and projecting that far, I say, no, I say every day you should look at your data. Yeah. Every day. 
So and that's it. So you 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 mentioned, and we've had we've had this joking conversation. Uh, you don't necessarily have an Instagram, but you have all the other platforms. You obviously yeah. promote a lot of Arch on LinkedIn, for example, on Twitter. Um, does Arch have its own Instagram? You just don't have an Instagram, or you're just off Instagram? No Instagram. <laughs> because a part of growth hacking, and I know that a lot of people are like, man, I make a gang of, I had a kid not a kid, a man, on his Instagram page, launched a product, made, sold 500 pieces of this product. Because Instagram is an efficient method of delivering a product, especially when it's something that people are familiar with. Right. He has no business savvy. He set it all up. The stuff isn't in production. He's pretty much stuck. Instagram is the same as Amazon. It's the same as eBay. It's the same as me selling on StockX. I don't control that. Next week, Instagram can decide to change the algorithm to where you can only reach 3% of the people who follow you. Now, all of a sudden, that energy and time that you placed into a platform that you don't own you have to place even more energy into it to get 6% of those people that follow you. Right. When, if you were making here and then sharing out, I'm making on David Falar, yeah, it's not going to be a lot of people here at first. But as I grow it, those people are going to be familiar with me. It's one less funnel that I have to create to the point of purchase that doesn't diminish the importance of social media. Social media is extremely powerful. It's just that I've seen what's sold. And I haven't seen a social media profile sell or get invested into. If anything, I've seen Nike make a conscious decision to launch their own blogs and to create their own influencers who are featured on their platforms. Yeah. So now, if you're an influencer and you wanted to work with Nike, that has become exponentially harder because Nike knows that they need to control their search, they need to control their message. That's incredible. It, it's, it's just facts. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, it, it just loops back to what I said a little bit earlier. Just invest in yourself but like the real self not through the optimization of something that you have really no control over and specifically instagram's algorithm has definitely changed over the past six months a lot like it's way harder to find new people or to reach yeah. people it's much much more difficult whereas now, you know you you optimize linkedin and linkedin's organic reach is a, a lot lot higher much higher yeah so much higher. there's a, a a lot of interest there and Listen, Chris, we've been we've been chopping it up now for uh, a while. Uh, close to coming in on an hour and a half here. So, yeah, you got to cut this, man. You um, you, you've dropped uh, a lot of know-how, knowledge, experience um for us. So, thank you very much for being our our twenty-second guest. Um, we're gonna go run through the platforms that you're on real quick. You, it is Arch 
ARCH-USA.com? That's the most important one and the only one that matters. Okay, you don't want to run through any of the other ones? Nope, don't care. At nothing? Nope, nope. okay. Care. If they want to find me, they go to arch-usa.com. Beautiful. And there's links on the top of the page and you can get to everything from there. But you know what? Find me on arch-usa.com, um, cbpublish.com, which is the publishing site and the music label, which I didn't even get into. Um, arch-usa.com. Don't confuse the people and give them a bunch of places, man. It creates a fractured search. Well, that's, uh, that's probably the best way to really wrap it up, right? So thank you for your time again. I appreciate you. Uh, hopefully you guys all enjoyed this episode. Uh, we'll be back next week. Go check out arch-usa.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of An Untold Narrative. Thanks, Chris. All right, man. I appreciate it. Yeah.